There. Welcome to our Soul Food Broadcast, a ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. I really enjoyed that, Tim. In fact, I wrote a song about it. No, I didn't. I'm just kidding. No, I didn't. Turn your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 4. And go down to verse 10, and please stand if you can when you get that. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verse 10. If you're new to Calvary Chapel, we go through the Bible verse by verse from Genesis to Revelations and we are now in the book of 1 Samuel so the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent there was a very great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers also the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli Hophni and Phinehas died then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the men came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. Then the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. And he said, What happened, my son? The messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines. There has been a great slaughter among the people. Also your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate. His neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have borne a son. She did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. And the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. When the people of Ashdod arose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. They took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they arose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and the palms of both of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon nor any who come to Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon to Ashdod in Ashdod to this day. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you just for the chance to gather together, Lord. Uh, enjoy praise and worship. Enjoy fellowship. Uh, we're going to enjoy your word, and then we're going to enjoy communion. Just pray that you would have uh, control of every aspect of our service and our lives today. 
ask in Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning we're going to be talking about what to do when the glory is gone. What to do when the glory of God has left your life. And the first thing you have to do, although it might sound kind of strange, is you have to realize that it's gone. We transition from our scripture to our times in a way that we must meditate upon this morning. You see, we have modern-day dagons that we have to contend with also. Idols are not just something that belongs to the ancient people of the past. The command in Exodus 20, verse 3, You shall have no other gods before me, is just as relevant now as it ever was. The same principle holds true for us in the 21st century as it did for the Israelites 3,500 years ago. American idols are just as dangerous for us as the Canaanite, Philistine, and Babylonian idols were for Israel. Paul would come along later and write it out like this to the church at Colossae. Colossians 2.8 reads, Don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that comes from the human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. We have to be vigilant in our time so that cultural compromise doesn't cause us to give in to the loose and immoral ways of this world. Never in my life have I been more aware of the evil of evil and the sinfulness of sin. Its corruption can destroy anything that it comes in contact with. Look at verse 10 with me. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Then a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line the same day and came to Shiloh with his clothes torn and dirt on his head. And when he came, there was Eli sitting on a seat by the wayside watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And though a man came into the city and told it, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the sound of this tumult mean? And the man came quickly and told Eli. At the beginning of this time here, history is quite silent concerning the Philistines. The last we read of them was during the days of Samson, who had troubled and terrorized them greatly before his swan song of killing somewhere around 3,000 of them. He had jerked down the pillars to their feasting house and had destroyed them amidst them jeering at him. The passage of time has been somewhere around 20 years since that time. But this passage of time had only brewed in in their heart a festering wound and a desire for revenge. They had waited patiently with a sense of wrath brewing for the perfect time to get back at the Israelites. The situation finally ripened for them at Ebenezer. They had managed to capture the ark of God from their enemy. We are also told of the death of Eli's wicked sons, Hophni and Phinehas. The sequence of events that begins here in verse 12 with the messenger who escaped from the scene of the battle and ran 20 miles up the hill to Shiloh. The story is now told from the perspective of the city as he escaped and approached. What we are told is that the whole city cried out, reminding us of the mighty shout from Israel a few verses earlier 
when the ark had come down from Shiloh to the camp at Ebenezer. This time the cry, however, had a different tone, and it wasn't a rejoicing one. Eli was sitting as he had been when we first saw him in 1 Samuel 1.9. Then he was Eli the priest, sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. Now he is just plain old Eli, and he is no longer sitting near the temple. These were not good days for Eli. We already know that he was very old, and his eyesight was failing. It's no surprise then to see him sitting and waiting. He was not capable of doing much more. Verse 15, please. Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were so dim that he could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who came from the battle, and I fled today from the battle line. He said, What happened, my son? So the messenger answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. So significant was this tragic event that Asaph the psalmist included it in one of his psalms. This is Psalm 7860. So that he, speaking of God, abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. That psalm teaches us that much more is happening than just the capture of the ark by the Philistines. For the Lord had abandoned the tabernacle at Shiloh and had allowed the enemy to destroy it. Sometime has passed since 1 Samuel 3, 2, where we learn of Eli's failing sight. Now he was completely blind. There is a touch of sad irony here. The man who was sitting, trembling with fear, watching the road in verse 13, was totally and completely blind. This really is a story about people playing a game that we all know too well. The Israelites were presuming on, while the Philistines were defying the power of God. The elders of Israel thought that bringing the ark down to Shiloh to their camp in Ebenezer would result in God saving them from their enemies. It didn't. And at the same time, the Philistines thought that the ark's presence in the Israelite camp posed a terrible threat to them. Once again, it didn't. Verse 18, please. Then it happened when he made mention of the ark of God that Eli fell off the seat backwards by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken and he died. For the man was old and heavy, and he had judged Israel forty years. Eli's heart didn't tremble for his sons, for he knew that they were both deserving of death. Eli was worried about the ark. The man maintained his composure when he was told about the death of his two sons. But when he learns that the ark of God has been captured, he falls backwards and dies just as the prophet said that he would on the same day as his two sons. There is a dreadful play of words on this story. The description of old Eli in verse 18 tells us he was heavy. The Hebrew word is kabed, which is the verb form of kabod, which means glory. You see, Eli had been the representation of the glory of the kabod of Israel since he was their priest, teacher, mediator, and representative. 
But the glory of Eli had become no more than his old bulk, and it had eventually killed him. I don't think it's an accident that the Bible tells us that Eli was a heavy man. Now, how did Eli get to be a fat man? He ate too much. I wish it was more profound, but that's what it is. And where did Eli get his food? Well, from the sacrifices. This is where it gets interesting. In 1 Samuel 2.29, God rebukes Eli, saying, Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribe for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by, get this, fattening yourselves on the choice parts of every offering made by my people Israel? You see, Eli knew that his sons were robbing the sacrifices. And Eli was fat because he had shared in that food that his sons had stolen. He may not have realized how brazen the boys had gotten about it, but he knew and he thus partook of their sin. You know what? It's hard for parents to rebuke their kids for sins that they don't want to confront in themselves. It's hard to control a child with attitude problems when the parent often loses their temper. It's hard to talk to kids about drugs when the parents are drinking alcohol. As with most examples, more is caught than taught. Verse 19. Now his daughter-in-law, Phineas' wife, was with child due to be delivered. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed herself and gave birth, for her labor pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the women who stood by her said to her, Do not fear, for you have born a son. But she did not answer, nor did she regard it. Then she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel because the ark of God has been captured and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. The consequences of this extraordinary fact will be played out to the end of chapter 6. For the moment, let's consider the fact that the ark itself of the covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, has been taken by the pagan Philistines. That means that God's throne is now an enemy territory. You see, the Jews had forgotten that the ark was God's throne in Israel only if Israel was submitted to him and obedient to his covenant. Anything else is nothing but ignorant superstition. Like people trusting in good luck charms, like a rabbit's foot, which, by the way, was pretty unlucky for the rabbit, if you think about it, since he lost his foot. Unfortunately, the dying, though, is not over for the house of Eli. The wife of Eli's son, Phineas, who is pregnant when she hears of her husband's death and the death of her husband and her father-in-law, when she hears this, she goes into premature labor. Imagine it. As she heard it, the headline news was the capture of the ark, followed by Eli's death, then followed by her husband's death. The news was coming closer and closer to home. The impact of the news of Eli and on the response of his daughter-in-law are the main concern of this passage. 
Just as Hannah's prayer in chapter 2 gave us the most profound insights into chapter 1, so now the words of another woman after the birth of another son will show us the extraordinary significance of what has happened. As she is in labor, things do not go well. Informed that her child is a boy, she names him Ichabod, which means no glory. Because she realizes that the departure of the ark symbolizes the departure of God's glory. Now, be honest. How many of you, when you first heard me say Ichabod, first thought of the legend of Sleepy Hollow? I did, too. It is in the book of Exodus that we first see this Hebrew word kabod, meaning weight or splendor, used in reference to God's presence, which we translate as his glory. It was the kabod that was present on Mount Sinai, Exodus 24:16, the kabod that appeared to Moses, Exodus 33:22, and the kabod that filled the tabernacle, Exodus 40:34. Now, with the ark gone and the people of God defeated, Ichabod's name, meaning where is the glory, was fitting, for it seemed that the glory of God has indeed departed. You see, to them, the ark of the covenant was God. It represented God's presence. And so, with it gone, as far as they were concerned, God was also gone. He had left them. And that provokes Phineas and Phineas's wife to name her son Ichabod, which means the glory has departed. G. Thanks, Mom. Thanks for naming me the glory is departed. Thanks for naming me Ichabod. You know that kid hated roll call in school, right? <laughs> now, if religion is the attempt by human beings to harness God's power to their own advantage, this story is testimony to the fact that it cannot be done. If the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord cannot guarantee Israel's safety, then no other religious act will do it. My church attendance, my prayers, my giving, my meditation, or whatever religious activities I practice cannot manipulate God's power to bring me success, prosperity, health, or happiness. God's power is not like that. It is not at our disposal. God's power is God's power. This episode should impress upon us at least that much. Look at chapter 5, verse 1 with me. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it from Ebenezer to Ashdod. When the Philistines took the ark of God, they brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. As we read on in chapter 5, we leave the Israelites behind for a while. We will return to them at the end of chapter 6. In the meantime, we are taking down to the victorious Philistines who have taken the ark as a trophy of their triumph. Now, biblical narrative often does interesting things with the time sequence of events. Since 1 Samuel 5.1, where we read of the Philistines capturing the ark of God, takes up the story precisely from 1 Samuel 4.11. The effect is to set the events that are about to be narrated alongside the happenings at Shiloh that we saw in chapter 4, verses 12 through 22. We are about to hear what was happening among the Philistines as the news of the ark's capture brought death and despair to Shiloh. Ashdod was one of the five Philistine cities on the Mediterranean sea coast of southern Israel. Dagon was half fish 
and half man. Just think of a male mermaid. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. Also worshipped by the Assyrians, he was considered by the people in the region of Canaan to be the father of Baal. So these heathen, idolatrous Philistines served Dagon, the fish god, who most likely has some kind of demonic power behind it. Now, the Philistines first put the ark in the temple of their god Dagon and Ashdod as evidence that Dagon was stronger than Israel's god Jehovah. You can almost imagine it was placed in a subordinate place so that a huge, towering, glaring idol appears to absorb and swallow the Ark of the Covenant. In the first few lines of the chapter, you can detect the immense sense of satisfaction among these Philistines. They are the conquering subject of every verb. They took, they brought, they set up. They believed that the Ark of the Hebrew God, the passive object of each of those verbs, was completely in their power and control, just as the people of Israel had been crushed beneath their might. The Philistines' treatment of the ark suggests they thought of it like an idol, like the image of Dagon. They may have even thought they were adding to the Hebrew God to Dagon's pantheon. Maybe they even respected the ark to a degree. One theologian observed the Philistines would not bow the knee, but they would tip the hat. So often in life, though, it looks like the Philistines are winning, doesn't it? Remember the bravado back in chapter 4, verse 9? They said, take courage and be men, you Philistines. And it looks like, they wor- like, looks like it worked. They won. They defeated Israel and captured the Ark of the Covenant as a trophy. Likewise, sometimes those around us who defy God sometimes seem to be doing very well. They seem to win more than their share of life's battles. But appearances can be very deceiving. That's why ladies wear makeup. Verse 3, quickly, please. I've been sick. And when the people of Ashdod rose early in the morning, there was Dagon falling its face to the earth before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set it in its place again. And when they rose early the next morning, there was Dagon falling on its face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. The head of Dagon and both the palms of its hands were broken off on the threshold. Only Dagon's torso was left of it. Therefore, neither the priests of Dagon or any who came to Dagon's house tread on the threshold of Dagon in Ashdod to this day. The sight of Dagon falling off his perch with his face in the dirt before the ark of the Lord is delicious. The narrator is enjoying it, and he's expecting us to enjoy it also. I wonder, many years later, with Isaiah thinking of this scene, when he launched into his body mockery of the idols of Babylon. This is Isaiah 46, 7. They lift it up upon the shoulder and carry it. They set it in its place, and it stands there. It does not move from its place. The one may cry to it. It cannot answer. It cannot deliver him from his distress. Dagon moved from his place, but he couldn't get back there again. They had to lift their mighty God back to his feet, or fishtail, I guess, in this instance. 
and they had to put him back in his place. Then they come back the next morning. Not only is he back face first in the dirt, but now his hands are broken off and only his torso remains. He couldn't even say, I've fallen and can't get up like those old commercials. They saw Dagon lying there. And one of the priests was overheard to say, Dagon it, how could this have happened? I'm sorry. And we had we had visitors too. It's the Old Testament version of Mr. Potato Head or Humpty Dumpty where all the king's horses and all the king's men can't put him back together again. It became quite evident that this God had no power and no wisdom. Psalm 95 describes God as the great king above all gods. You see, the the demise of Dagon was no act of vandalism. It was the wrath of God Almighty. Dagon fell humble, just as every, every knee one day will bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the last sentence in verse 4 is curious in the Hebrew. Literally, it says, only Dagon remained on him. No head, no hands, only Dagon. That's a delightful way of saying what Dagon really was. He can never think, speak, or act. So chop off his head and his hands, and you still have Dagon left. I don't know about you, but I don't want a God that I have to prop up. I want a God that can carry me. Now, if you walked in the temple of your God and discovered that his head was cut off and his hands were missing, and all you could see was the fish part of your idol, when you think something was fishy. But isn't it interesting that instead of realizing that their God was powerless, instead of that, they create a new religious tradition. They're like, now, we won't step on this threshold ever again. Kind of like if you step on the crack, you'll break your mother's back superstition. They said, we're going to honor as holy ground where our God lost his head. One would think that having to step over Dagon's head as they walked through the temple would prove to the people that Dagon was no god at all. Instead, however, the people honored this as holy ground. The only explanation I can think of for this is that pagan religions, including the worship of Dagon, require many bizarre practices and immoral procedures. The Philistines, I think, knew that Dagon wasn't a real god but they justified their false religious system because it gave them license to indulge in their flesh. That was a very bizarre biblical account we went through this morning, but let's pull its truth into 2014. Our lives are all created to only be satisfied with God, and yet we can fasten our minds, our bodies, and our wills on other sources of ultimate devotions. That may not sound too serious until you realize that the Bible calls that idolatry. Idolatry is the most serious sin in the Old Testament, leading one scholar to conclude that the primary principle of the Old Testament is a refutation of idolatry. Idolatry could be called the sin beneath the sin. What I mean is that any time I sin, I'm allowing some competing desire to have a higher priority than God 
and God's will for my life. That means the moment I put anything on a pedestal above God, that something is now my idol. And you know what? In a sense, we can all commit idolatry to some degree every single day. It is a sin of the soul meeting its needs with anything that distances itself from God. Today, we are still dwelling in Dagon's den. We're still in enemy-occupied territory. False teachings and idolatries of all kinds surround us, especially the idolatry of self. And idolatry is trying to find happiness or satisfaction in anything other than God. Yet the God of self is like Dagon, a very fragile idol. We also live in an age where injustice and immorality seem to prevail, where almost anything goes. People seem more interested in what they can get away with than what they should be doing. In 2006, Bob Hosletter wrote a book entitled American Idols, The Worship of the American Dream. In closing, I'm using the chapter titles to provoke your thoughts as to what some modern dagons may look like. The eBay attitude. The eBay attitude is the insatiable desire to have more. More things, more stuff, more money, and more notoriety. It has created an epidemic of desire in such a way that we are never satisfied because we are continually craving more. We believe that having more will make us happier. We believe that having more will make us more important. We believe that having more will make us more secure. At its deepest motivation is the dark sin of covetousness, and the remedy for it is to get the ark into the dark place of our hearts. The next one is a trap of individualism. The idol of individualism comes to the emphasis on individuality, self-expression, self-esteem, and self-fulfillment. It's all about me. In the conservative church today, we see it as a virtue, as the rugged individualism that made America great. I don't need anyone to help me. I can do it by myself. And yet God has clearly wired us in such a way that we need one another. The next American idol is the Eros Ethos. The next idol hasn't just slipped in the door, it's kicked down the door. It's the Eros problem. Our society is overdosed on immoral sexual behavior. Kids in my generation had to seek out things that had sexual overtones to it, and it was usually pretty difficult to find. We thought pornography was those topless African ladies in National Geographic. (laughs) But this generation doesn't have to look for it. Instead, they're having to run from it. How about this one? The passion for fashion. Not so much here. Closets loaded with clothes, shoes, and attachments. Or how about the lazy boy life? Comfort, complacency, and apathy. It's difficult to get interested in working for God's kingdom when we're so comfortable in a spiritual sense. Here's a big one, the love of money. When we lose the desire to give our tithes and offerings to God, squandering what we do make, and we still can't seem to make all the ends meet, we're just like that bunch that Haggai described. We put our money in sacks that has holes in them. Or how about the Martha syndrome? Busy? I'm so busy. I'm too busy to do this or that. 
The fact of the matter is, if we were to take an honest inventory of where our time is being spent, we'll probably discover we're not nearly as busy as we think. We may just be a lot more selfish than we realize. So what do we do? This is where grace comes in. I can never replace an idol simply by turning from it. I must turn toward something. As Timothy Keller puts it, we are all governed by an overwhelming positive passion. He gives an example in the book of Genesis. A young man named Jacob meets a young woman named Rachel and tells her father he wants to marry her. He offers to work seven years for Laban if he can marry Rachel. Laban says yes, so Jacob serves seven years to get Rachel, but it says they seemed only like a few days to him because of his love for her. Do you know what that tells us this morning? Jacob discovered time is relative long before Albert Einstein had anything to say about it. Every single day for seven years, Jacob doesn't just show up for work. He does so with a song in his heart. Why did seven years seem like just a few days? Because he had an overwhelming positive passion, and that changed everything. But what happens if a person refuses to turn from idolatry? What will the Lord do in such a case? Come back next week to find out. And Father, I know that idolatry seems so distant to us. It seems like something on Channel 9, on PBS. But Lord, I know that uh, there are idols continually vying for our devotion. I pray that you would reveal them to us. They're all different for everybody in here. But uh, y'all come from the same source. We want to have our source in you. for it. Only you can satisfy, Lord, for you have wired us that way. We all know, Lord, there is a God-filled vacuum in our heart, and only you can fill that. And I pray that you would do that today, Lord, for we all acknowledge our need for you. That's us in Christ's name. Amen. Being the first Sunday of the uh, month, I'm going to ask Elder Haynes to come up and serve communion.